Cece and I have the pleasure of reading today's Bible reading with you. Um, out of interest, I'm not sure what you guys came up with in your pre-sermon questions, but we decided that we would want a judge that is favouring both. <laughs> uh, and we also specifically mentioned uh, that if they would be merciful, particularly to us, <laughs> it's a bit selfish to say, but also we'd want justice to be served. So, um, yeah, a bit of good little discussion this morning. Um, now, I'll get you uh, to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Isaiah. We'll be reading from chapter 52, uh, to verses 13, to chapter 53, verses, sorry, chap, chapter 52, verse 13, to 53, 12. Um, if you haven't brought your Bibles with you, the Bible passage should appear on the screen behind me for you to read along with us today. Um, and we'll be reading again from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. Please join me in prayer before we read together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and for sending your son Jesus Christ as an innocent servant to die on the cross and take on the punishment for our sin. We pray that you give Pastor Felix boldness as he speaks today and that you'll use him as a mouthpiece for your good works. Please humble and quieten our hearts as we hear your word today and please give us wisdom to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 52 verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand." Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we were, we were healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, 
He will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of our Lord. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks, CC, for that uh, lovely Bible reading. And a warm, warm welcome to all the kids. Thanks uh, for joining us. It's great to have you here. Uh, so for everyone, uh, there might be a little bit more noise today, but that's okay. Isn't it lovely that we can all worship uh, under the same roof together as one family? Well, would you want a judge to be just, or would you want that judge to be merciful? I think um, it's a hard question to answer. I don't know if you found that as you were discussing it uh, to your uh, neighbours around you. Because on the one hand, we all want justice, right? We want justice, particularly for those who break the law, particularly if we ourselves have suffered as a victim of a crime. We want justice to be served, and not just served, but to be served fully. And so we, are all, we all cringe We are all appalled when we hear about criminals getting away with their crimes due to some legal loophole. Or maybe the rich bribing their way out of justice. We are horrified when someone serves jail time or executed even for a crime that they've never committed. We care about justice. But at the same time, we also care about mercy, don't we? We want mercy because we know that we ourselves often slip up. That if we ever get caught speeding or running a red light or whatever, and we get caught for that, we want the officer to show us a bit of grace. If we ever get caught doing the wrong thing or if we harm someone one way or another, we wish there were leniency. We want a second chance. But do you see the issue here? If both justice and mercy are important, then how can you actually have both? Because at the core of mercy is that the offending party doesn't get the punishment they deserve, at least not fully. At the heart of perfect justice is that there is no leniency, there is no mercy. The punishment must be served fully. And so, what's your choice? Is it justice or will it be mercy? And so far up to this point in our series in Isaiah, we've seen both justice and mercy being shown to Israel, God's people. We've seen over and over again that God's people were guilty. Guilty of ignoring and rejecting God. And who is this God that they rejected? The God who took them and made them his own people, even though they were slaves, nobodies, oppressed in a foreign land under Egypt. And then God took them to giving them their own land to enjoy freedom to live under God. And these people, God's people, were guilty of turning away from God and instead towards the useless idols that did nothing, the creation of their own hands. And because of that, 
they ignored God's justice. They oppressed the poor, and corruption was rife in the land. And so because of all of these things, God's people deserved God's punishment. That was justice. But then the funny thing is, as we read all these chapters of Isaiah, we also keep hearing another common thing. And that is God's promise to save his people. God promises restoration. God promises to wipe away the guilt and the sin of his people, to make them clean, to make them pure. God promises to make his people holy and righteous, that they will no more be punished by God because of their filth. And so the question for us is, how? How will God do this? How can God show ultimate mercy to a people whose sin means that they deserve judgment? And what hope is there for this vicious cycle of sin and punishment and then grace to come in, to just to keep happening and happening again? What hope is there? Because we see this complete restoration and salvation. We saw that last week. Pastor Iggy showed us that. That God has in store not just a restoration for the people of Israel, but for the whole world. And so in today's passage, we'll see exactly how God will be solving this issue once and for all. And just like last week, God's solution is by sending his servant. Now, when you think of a servant or a savior who comes to save our world, our pop culture has some pretty firm ideas of what that type of person might look like. So our movies... Uh, are filled with people with superhuman strength, superhuman ability. Maybe uh, they're super rich and they can invent the right toys. Maybe they've got superhuman intelligence and ingenuity. What we look for in a saviour are the outward signs of power and might. Even with someone like Captain America, the, the moral of that story is that you can be morally exceptional, you can be really upright, But that's not good enough. You also need to have muscles if you want to save the world. See, superhuman strength, abilities, that's what we look for in a saviour. But the first line that we read today, the one that God sends to save us, well, it completely goes against our human logic. And God says his way of saving is unbelievable. Verse 1, Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Right? The arm of the Lord reminds us of the book of Exodus when, when God saves his people Israel from slavery with a mighty arm, outstretched arm, miracles, wonders, and plagues. But why is God's arm so hard to believe this time? Why is God's salvation so hard to believe this time? Well, this is the picture of God's Savior, verse 2. He grew up like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. When God sends his saviour, there'll be nothing outwardly impressive about him. Weak, vulnerable, you can sort of step on that, that, that weed and not even notice. But worse, this shoot is rooted in dry ground. Not fertile ground, but of poor and unimpressive, ordinary upbringing. You take a look at that and say, there's no chance that will ever come to anything. I wouldn't be surprised if I came back the next day and it'd be dead, it'd be withered. And so it continues, the servant has no beauty 
unattractive, no majesty, no fine clothing, nothing to make us think, wow, this guy is going to save us. There's no lavish lifestyle, nothing that draws us towards him. There's nothing attractive about this servant. If this servant came today, you won't see him wearing a nice designer suit. He won't be wearing the the flashiest sneakers on stage. He won't have a, a crew to put makeup on him to make him presentable on camera. He won't be a wealthy billionaire promising to save us with his wealth or technology. He won't have strong charismatic charm that people are normally drawn to. Because God's servant is ordinary, less than ordinary, unattractive and unimpressive. This just completely cuts against the grain of our superficial, worldly way of thinking, doesn't it? Because we're so naturally drawn to what is naturally and outwardly impressive. Wealth, celebrity, physical beauty. We can't, be, we can't help but be enamored by these things. We, we want to watch television shows that have these things. We want to know the lives of the rich and famous. We are drawn to these things. But God's servant has none of that. But it gets even worse than this. Because not only is this servant outwardly unattractive and unimpressive, but he is despised, rejected by mankind, familiar with pain. So much so that he will be known as a man of suffering. Now, we have to take ourselves back to that time, and even today. It's common for people to link one person's suffering, the current condition of suffering, to, well, it must be punishment of some sort, right? If you're sick, if you're poor, well, I wonder what he did or what she did to make herself end up in that situation. And that was more so the case back, back in Jesus' time. If you were sick or if you were suffering, people thought, oh, you must have sinned badly. His or her parents must have sinned badly. And so maybe that's why this servant is being despised. As they saw this servant suffer in pain, they must have thought, God is punishing this servant. God must be so angry with this servant. And here, they are only partially right. Because it is completely true that God is the one causing this servant to suffer. But Isaiah tells us this clearly, and this is the thing that we have to get right. Because this servant takes up our sins. Surely he took up our pain. He bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. See, humanly speaking, this is the most counterintuitive saviour. This unattractive, suffering servant taking upon himself pain, taking upon himself the guilt and shame of sin. It's not his own pain that he's suffering, but he takes ours. And so what is the effect of this? This punishment brings us peace. His wounds have healed us. It's like a complete swap of places. On the one hand, we were on death row. We were headed towards the execution, the electric chair, whatever it was. We were guilty as charged, no hope of peace. And then there's someone who is innocent. And he steps in and says, you come out. Let me trade places with you. And you can enjoy peace. You can enjoy the innocent verdict. On the one hand, we were sick, wounded, diseased because of our sin. 
And then the one who is completely healthy, he comes in and somehow he touches us and, and transfers all of our sickness, our festering wounds, our bedridden sickness. He comes, takes our terminal prognosis, and it's all absorbed into him somehow. And so we become healthy while he is sick. Now, as you hear this explanation of this savior, this servant who comes to save us, some of you might be thinking to yourselves, why do we need to have such a drastic solution? Because why do we even need saving in the first place? You might be thinking, yeah, sure, I'm not perfect, but come on, no one is. Why do I need someone to die in my place for my, you know, imperfect life? But, it, you know, it's not that bad. I, I, I don't do anything that bad. And even in these verses that we've just read, talking about why we need healing, it doesn't sound that bad, does it? We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way. Now, the, the Colin Buchanan song that we've begun the service with, what a great way to teach scripture to our kids, right? I'm sure if I learnt more kids' songs, I'm sure I would remember a lot more uh, scripture passages in my life. Put scripture to such a catchy tune. Ugh. And not to take away from kids' songs that hope to see God's word teach uh, our, our children and grow up memorizing God's word, but there, are, there is a potential for songs like this to just give us an impression of God's word that is not quite aligned to what God is saying. Because it doesn't sound that bad, does it? A picture of a sheep mindlessly wandering off, oh, I've accidentally gone to my own way, ba ba do ba ba. It just sounds a little bit trivial. Why does that, me wandering off, why does that require someone to take my pain and suffering, to die for me? But we need to go back and picture that image. What's a shepherd's role? What's a shepherd's job? A shepherd's job is to look after his sheep as he guides his sheep through the dangerous wilderness, to look for food, to feed the sheep, to look for water, to drink. The shepherd who day and night keeps watch for predators who might pounce on his flock and attack them. The shepherd who stands in the way of these predators to protect these otherwise helpless and defenseless sheep. And what are we like? We have this awesome God who protects us day and night, giving us food, feeding us. And what do we do? Instead of listening, instead of choosing to stay with our shepherd who cares for us, we choose to deliberately wander off into the barren wilderness, into the dry desert, full of predators, where there is no food, where we are lost. It's saying, I don't need you, God. I don't need your protection. I don't need you to tell me what to do because I'm going to look for satisfaction. I'm going to look for life elsewhere. I'm going to find my own joy not living under your rules so that I can be free in the desert. I'm going to find meaning in my life apart from you who made me. But can you see what happens then? Seeking life apart from our shepherd who gives and sustains our life only means one thing. It's death. And so when, when God's word tells us that we deserve God's judgment, it's not simply because we broke a couple of small rules here and there throughout our lives. 
It's not because even some of us might have broken big rules. Things that we have done, might, that, that might have been terrible. It's not even because of that. But ultimately, it's our decision to actively wander away from the God who not only gives us life, but deserves all our respect, all our obedience, and all our worship, all our lives. So when you think about disrespect and disobedience, that has multiple layers, doesn't it? And it all depends on who you're rebelling against. So if you disrespect your teacher at school, you might get some warnings, you get put on detention, you get suspended maybe. If you disrespect or disobey a police officer, you can get fined or even put to jail. If if you're in the army and you ignore a direct command, you get court-martialed or maybe even more serious consequences. The higher the level that you show disrespect to, the more serious the crime, the greater the punishment that is deserved. And so what happens when we disrespect, when we disobey the God of the universe? The one who is not just in charge of our local LGA or our state or our country, but the one who rules over all human history, who rules over kings, who rules over all the nations of the world. See, to appreciate the enormity of what's going on here, we need to first recognize the enormity of our own sin, of our own rejection of God. But here's the good news. Because God takes that iniquity, right, that sin, our act of disobeying God, turning our backs on God, God takes that, that repulsive way that we ignored God, And he takes that sin and he says, I'm going to consider my servant as the one who did all these things. And I'm going to consider you, all of us, we who deserve death, I'm going to consider you innocent as sinless. And so after hearing that, you might have another objection. And you might be thinking, how is this fair? Right? How can a just God allow this innocent servant to to take up another person's guilt and sin? Isn't God supposed to be just? Or as some have called it, if we apply this to the person of Jesus, then isn't this divine child abuse? But we need to see the servant's own will here. This servant who takes our sin and punishment. Because this servant, it's not like he, he is dragged, kicking and screaming against his will to take on the sin of God's people, right? But he willingly goes. He doesn't protest. He doesn't even open his mouth. He's not some unwitting child who has this force upon him. He fully well, knows full well what he has chosen to do and what it will mean. He knows the consequences. His will is God's will. And so there's no protest, no objection, no objection. And so this is where we need to really address the elephant in the room because let's let's stop pretending here. We all know who the servant is, right? This is none other than Jesus. It's so clear, isn't it? Jesus, the Son of God, who came down as one of us, not as a rich, impressive, kingly figure, but the son of some unknown carpenter, born in Bethlehem, but grew up in the backwaters of, of Nazareth. Nazareth is a place you wouldn't even want to buy a house in to live in if you wanted to be 
anybody, if you want to get somewhere in life. The man who physically takes our diseases away, who physically healed through his miracles. The man who ultimately was rejected by his own people. They mocked him, sentenced him to death on a cross for no good reason. And there on the cross, he was pierced. Not because of his own sin, but because of ours. That God poured out the anger due to us upon Jesus on that cross. And there on the cross, Jesus pays the ultimate price. Cut off from the land of living. The author of life, cut off from life. Pays with his life. Dies as a criminal, even though he was innocent. And buried in a rich man's tomb. All right. That little detail there in Isaiah must have seemed so strange. Why would you include that? It seems so contradictory. How can you be a criminal and yet buried in a, in a rich man's tomb even though you were poor and oppressed? But now it totally makes sense, right? We understand that now because a man named Joseph gave Jesus his own tomb to be buried in. And so this is where knowing who Jesus really is, that's the final piece of the puzzle in understanding God's justice. Because this suffering servant isn't just some random third party that God pours out his judgment upon. It's not like God is here, we are here, and then, oh, I'm just going to pluck this guy out of nowhere and pour my wrath into him to pay for your sins. But who is this servant? Jesus is God's own son. This Jesus in the Gospel of John identifies as the I Am, as Yahweh, as God himself that has been revealing all these truths to us throughout the Old Testament and throughout Isaiah. Jesus is God. It's not some third party, unrelated third party, but God who condemns us is the one who absorbs our sin. And so to answer the question, how is this fair? The answer is, it's not fair. It's not one bit fair. Because justice has to be done. Payment for sin has to be made for God to be just. But it is God himself who absorbs that punishment on our behalf. Because the one who ought to condemn us, the one who is the wronged party, he's the one that suffers. He's the one that pays the price, the full price himself. In God's justice and mercy, God himself suffers injustice so that his people can be considered not guilty, that we may be forgiven. Let me say that again. In God's justice and mercy, God himself suffers injustice so that we may be forgiven. This is not at all fair, friends, but it's good news for us. And so... Can you say this is the only solution to the dilemma that we saw at the beginning today? How is this sinful nation going to be a light to the world when they themselves are stuck in sin? How can God's people ever reach the measure of righteousness, sinlessness, holiness, ever to be right in God's eyes to receive these blessings that were promised throughout the book? How can God show mercy to a nation whilst being just? Well, this hopeless situation needs a radical solution. And this suffering servant is the only true solution. 
the perfect sinless servant pays the ultimate price, pierced, crushed, suffered death for our sins. And in doing so, justifies, declares not guilty. You are right before God. And he does that to all of us who had no hope of attaining that for ourselves. Now, usually at this point, that's the end of the story. Right? If you watch a movie marking out just how unjust the death of the main character was, death has the final word as you're left reeling at the injustice of the criminal system or the cruelty and evil of a mankind as a whole. And at best, the epilogue of that movie or story might show how that unjust death is a cause for social reform or something like that, just to show that this death of an innocent man was not somehow in vain, but not in God's story. Because as God gives this servant the enormous and unique task of being an offering for the sin of the world, the aftermath of this story, the epilogue of this story is equally as incredible. Because unlike any other person up to this point in history, death will not have the final word. Because this, off- this servant will see his offspring, his days will be prolonged, and he will see the light of life and be satisfied. It can't get any clearer than that. This is resurrection. The servant who died comes back to life, and not just back to life, but you know, still wounded and, and sort of half alive, but he will experience life fully. The final word isn't death, but it's victory over death. Victory over sin. This is the ultimate vindication for that servant who was despised and rejected by his generation. This is evidence that he was actually who he claimed to be, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this means that we can really trust, truly trust, that Jesus can take away our sin. Now, some of us here today might be carrying the burdens of our own guilt and shame that we just can't get rid of. Maybe it's something that you've done in the past that you haven't told anyone yet before. Something so shameful that you hope will be buried forever, that no one will find out. Something that if you think your friends and family ever found out about, they would look at you in disgust. And you know what the world solution to that is? Well, you just try your hardest to make up for it. You do enough good to balance out the bad. And it's the same with all religions. You need to be a good enough person to climb your way back up out of the pit of shame with your good deeds. You need to balance good and bad in your life somehow. You need to pray enough times in the day, confess your sins enough times. You need to give money. You need to do this. You need to do that. But this is where the gospel of Jesus is so different. First, the bad news. The bad news is God tells us that our sin is far worse than we can ever comprehend. Our sin, our rebellion against the God of the universe is so far gone that there is nothing that you can ever do to get yourself out of that mess. And I bet some of you feel that already. That no matter how much good you do, you just can't scrub off the filth of your past. And most of all, turning our backs on the God of the universe deserves a punishment that we can't even begin to understand. But the gospel of Jesus brings us wonderful, 
wonderful good news. And that hole that you could never climb out of yourself, the gospel says, God has provided you a way out. He doesn't say, try your hardest and look, we'll we'll see what happens at the end of the day. But God sends his son Jesus, the perfect servant, to lift that burden off your shoulders and take it upon himself. Guilt, your shame of living your, your past, the consequence of the penalty of death, Jesus takes it all from you. And at the cross, Jesus takes the full force of God's anger in your place. And so all of us here now, all you need to do is put your trust in Jesus, to look upon Jesus as he was lifted up on the cross for you and believe, believe that Jesus has done this for you. And when you do that, when you let Jesus take your sin away from you, know that you are declared right before God. You are forgiven, no matter what you've done. And so if you're here today with us and you want to put your trust in Jesus to let him carry your sin, then please come and talk to someone afterwards. Please come to talk to myself or Pastor Iggy or a friend, the friend that brought you along uh, with, with us today. Because we'd be so glad, we'd be so glad to keep talking to you, to answer your questions, to, to explain things clearer and to walk with you through this journey of following Jesus and finding out more about him. If this is you, please come and talk to us afterwards. But this is also a really, really crucial reminder for us who do follow Jesus today. Because there is a tendency for this message that we've heard so many times to lose its power and impact. Each Sunday or weeknight in life group, we read about Jesus dying for our sins and we'd be like, yep, that's a big sacrifice that Jesus made. Yep, I know we need to be grateful. Ba-ba, do-ba-ba. And then we just tune it out, wanting to focus on something else, something more meaty, something deeper, you know, something a bit more interesting. And it's a good thing, right? We, We want to go deep. We want to be devoted disciples of Jesus who go deeper into God's Word. We want to spend the rest of our lives discovering more and more treasure in the vast storehouse of God's Word. But this simple message of the gospel should never stop to grip our hearts every single time we hear it. And I hope that as we've been hearing Isaiah's picture of this servant punished for our sin, that you would feel again the injustice of what happened to our Lord Jesus. I hope you get a renewed sense of just how incredible it is that we no longer have to bear the weight and punishment, the guilt and the shame of our own sin. That we realize just how much we owed God because of our rebellion and just how much we had no hope of saving ourselves. Because as we see that, we will marvel at what God's wonderful solution for us is. And I can't think of a better way to do that then for us, as the family of Christ here together, to read Isaiah 53 out loud, right? As a people redeemed by Jesus, forgiven by Jesus' sacrifice, we would declare what the suffering servant has done for us. And so the verses will appear on the screen. Let's read together. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain, he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of one has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we come before you, confronted by this picture of your servant, the Lord Jesus, who sacrificed everything so that we could be cleansed and washed, so that we could be guilt-free, sin-free, shame-free. Father, may this message never lose its impact on us. If there's anyone here today that's still holding on to their sin, Father, we pray that the work of your spirit would be at work for them to put their trust in Jesus so that they could have that burden lifted off them and enjoy freedom and life under Jesus, under you. And Father, we pray that this message will continue to transform our lives as we live day by day in thankfulness, in gratitude, in holiness because of what you have done. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.